from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Faresh Day Bechtel, who grew up in a Baha'i family in Iran until she was 15. Her family decided to leave Iran to serve the Baha'i faith elsewhere and ended up in El Paso, Texas. Faresh Day married an American and had an opportunity to return to Iran with her new family by way of her husband's company. While in Iran, she completed her four-year degree there. She and her family returned to the U.S. in 1976, and she continued her education, getting her Ph.D. in psychology. Her thesis was on the psychology of martyrdom, which we talk about in the interview. For many years, she taught at the college level. I started the interview by asking Faresh Day where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I was born in Tehran, Iran, and the first six or seven years I lived with my family in Tehran, and then later on uh, my father was a person who did a lot of farming and would buy a piece of land and farm it. So he bought a piece of land in the city of Iraq, and that's where we moved to, and so I spent the first few years of my education in the city of Iraq, which is in southwest of Tehran. What was religious life like for you growing up? Well, when I went to the first grade in Iraq, that was probably my first experience with religious persecution. You know, sometimes students would tease us, or uh, make certain comments that would be negative regarding uh, our belief system, being a member of the Baha'i faith. But uh, you, it, that did not really bother me all that much. I, was, I had pretty uh, much of a self-confidence in myself that uh, the situation was not so much determined what, by what others may have said or done. I have one experience I remember vividly. It was in the middle of the winter, and uh, we were all asleep. And apparently uh, our fellow Muslims came over and put graffiti over our walls, outside of the walls of our house in the city of Iraq. And there was a, a lot of snow, too, on the ground. And so the next morning when we woke up, we realized what had happened. So having had three brothers, I remember them going out and trying to wash off the graffiti, which was, you know, graffiti against the Baha'i faith and us being members of the Baha'i faith. That's one vivid memory of early childhood. What era is this? Was this before the uh, 1979 Islamic Revolution? Yes. I was born in 1944, so this would have been in 1950, 51, 52, in that neighborhood. 
as Baha'is, you are able to assemble freely and practice your religion. I'm, I'm, when I mean freely, I mean you were not arrested if you gathered together and had your Baha'i meetings? No, we were not uh, arrested. Uh, we had our meetings. There was actually a Baha'i center in the city of Iraq. This is a smaller town in Iran. I mean, the persecutions have always been a reality in our lives, but they have had a lot of ups and downs. But some comments would be made against the faith, uh, occasionally now and then. It wasn't absolute freedom, but we did have relative freedom in assembling in uh, the Baha'i Center in the city of Iraq. And what did you do after completing high school? Actually, in Iran, I did not complete high school. What happened, I hadn't finished the ninth grade that my parents decided to move to the U.S., and that was just about the time when I was 15 years of age. So we came to the U.S. in 1960, and, uh, and I finished high school later on here in the U.S., and... Uh, finished part of college, then went back to Iran, lived there for six years with my husband and three children, and finished college there and then came back again to the U.S. What were the reasons that your family moved to the U.S.? First of all, my mother was an American school graduate, in high school graduate back in Iran, so she had had exposure to the Western civilization, and parents were uh, quite open-minded about these things, uh, about coming to the West and uh, make the best out of it and try to improve the lives of their children, educationally and otherwise. So that, that was the purpose. And But really, actually, before coming to the U.S., I remember now that you mentioned it, I'm just going back in my mind's memory, and that was the reason that we came to the U.S. was not so much that we wanted to migrate to the U.S. We wanted to go to South America as pioneers for the Baha'i faith, like missionary work. And so we came to the U.S. in 1960, and my mother was the only person who could speak English. And she talked with the secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the U.S., and said that, okay, it is the 10th of April, we have now arrived, and we would like to get to South America at that time. I believe my father was thinking of Venezuela or Brazil, and can we get to South America by the 21st of April, which would be the day for the election of the local governing body in all the cities around the world of the Baha'i communities, and the Secretary of the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of the U.S., which is the national governing body of the Baha'is of this country, said to us, well, we will not have enough time to get our South America visa in order to get there by the 21st of April. So my mom asked, well, well what should we do? Uh, what is the closest town to South America that would need uh, need some Baha'is to help with the formation of their local spiritual assembly or their local governing body of the Baha'is of that community, and they told us to go to El Paso, Texas, 
and that gave enough of an opportunity for my parents to become to be uh, elected to membership of the lo- first local assembly of the Baha'is of El Paso, Texas, and that's how we ended up staying in the U.S. instead of South America. Now, how did they support themselves once they got to El Paso? Uh, my father actually had, right before coming to the U.S., uh, he was a, a realtor, and he had a very a good lucrative deal on one piece of land that he had sold, so his commission was good enough to uh, bring all of us to the U.S., and it helped him to last maybe two or three years. After that, he opened up a gas station. He had a restaurant. A couple of times he had restaurants. And so just doing different things that usually a lot of immigrants do uh, in order to make ends meet. So what was your reaction or what was your first impression uh, arriving in the United States? Well, my first impression was that, first of all, we came by train from New York to El Paso, Texas. And uh, at the railroad station, uh, there were some Baha'is who had been informed that we were arriving. So they came in the middle of night to pick us up from the train. At that time, I did not speak any English. I only knew maybe yes or no. And then there was uh, this lady who came to me, and she said, Are you Baha'is? And uh, with a southern drawl. I'm sorry, I can't imitate it well enough. And I thought I heard the word Baha'is, so that's the only thing I identified in the entire sentence. And I said, Well, you know, it's better to say yes than no, (laughs) because I wasn't sure exactly whether I heard her right or not. And I said yes, and she gave me a big hug and embrace and welcomed us and all the other Baha'is, too, who were at the station, and they took us to their home in El Paso. And so they gave us a wonderful welcome, and it was a very happy and joyous start of our journey in America. And how long were you in New York? Well, in New York, just probably maybe... uh, we arrived on the 10th, and we were gone and at, in El Paso by the 21st of April, so uh, probably only a week or maybe a li- less than that, maybe five days, six days, something like that. Now, culturally, what would you say made the biggest impression on you when you first arrived, either in New York or El Paso? Okay, in, uh, in New York, I had never seen so many high-risers in mm. my life, and I remember on one occasion, I thought I came on a street which just went straight, and I said, well, I'm going to find my way back, but somehow when I wanted to get back, I was lost, and that was kind of shocking to me, but I asked somebody with my Persian accent, I said, where is Theodore Hotel, and he couldn't understand me because that's not how it's supposed to be pronounced. Finally, I had to spell it for him, and then he said, oh, where is Tudor Hotel? You know, I mean, the way that he said it with his accent, and I said, uh, yes, that's the one, and then he said, straight ahead, <laughs> and so finally I came back. So that was my brief uh, duration of loss in, in, in New York. Other than that, I mean, things were expensive, and we were completely new, and the only one who could speak English was my mother, and she was our 
interpreter in all the things that we wanted to say or do. And then uh, in El Paso, well, very shortly after our arrival, my father decided to put me in a beauty school with my sister to enroll us there. Being too much of a left-brainer, that type of a right-brain uh, atmosphere didn't really attract me. In other words, I was not too much into beautifying myself or others or working in somebody's hair or, or facial aspects of her reality. And so it didn't go all that well with me. And, uh, and I told my father I really would like to go back to school and finish up, wrap up the remainder of my high school education and eventually move on to college. And, of course, shortly after, actually, I got married. I got married at the age of 16 uh, with my American husband, and he was a member of the Baha'i faith, too, but he was uh, about eight years my senior. Ten months after I got married, I had my first child, and then another year we had the second child, and then my, at 22 I had my last child, where a lot of times nowadays they begin having kids. So that was the aspect of my marriage. And so I've been married for 50 years now. That's five zero. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had the golden anniversary not too long ago. Anyway, so what happened is that, uh, you know, the children grew and developed. And then I went back and finished up my high school, got my high school diploma in matter of about one full year, finishing, wrapping up three and a half years of unfinished high school years in Iran and got the high school diploma here. And then I went to uh, a junior college simultaneously as I was having kids because I was very interested in education. Tremendously, I was very interested in that. And uh, was a math major for a while and picked up some credit there. And then later on, I, I mean, I didn't have time to finish. And then later on, uh, my husband got a job in Iran, and uh, he and I and the three children went to Iran for six years from 1970 to 1976. So that was the reason you went back to Iran, was because your husband had a job there, not so much because you wanted to finish your education there. Uh, that is correct. Mm. He landed a job and a good job, and that's why we went back. But then I did have the opportunity to get my uh, bachelor's degree in a Christian college in Tehran. So did your husband know Farsi? Uh, he picked up Farsi. He was, being a member of the Baha'i faith, he was very interested in Farsi. And he did pick it up. He's relatively fluent. And he has memorized a lot of prayers in Persian, in Arabic, and of course his native tongue is English, and he enjoys it. He enjoys reading the writings in the original languages that they were revealed in. What was the job that he got in Iran? It was uh, in engineering, and they were, I think what they were installing were called microwave. It dealt with satellites and working with the communication system. That's what it was. 
mm-hmm. the communication system they were setting up there. And there were American firms, and one American firm hired him and took him there, and we uh, went along. And, and the- it was one of our best times of our stay in Iran. We, we enjoyed the visit there. I mean, the stay, the six years over there very much. It's very educational and heartwarming. And, and again, if we talk about persecutions, they, there was, I, mean, I didn't face any open persecutions, but we, didn't, we couldn't be all that open in our practice of, of religion as you would be in the U.S. But we did not really face any direct persecution during those six years, at least and, and my husband and I did not. Would you say that possibly there was more tolerance toward you all being Baha'is because your husband was American and therefore, quote-unquote, he didn't know any better? Well, that uh, may have uh, contributed to, uh, to it. Uh, of course, we were in the city of Tehran, a well-populated, very modernized city, so we had our meetings, our activities, and nobody, I mean, came to our door to say, why are you holding a meeting, uh, or wh- wherever we attended. But uh, the persecutions at that time was more regarding if we taught the Baha'i faith to others, then they would show up at our gatherings, which are called firesides for giving the message of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, to people, they would, uh, they would come and, and try to interrupt by their questions or see individuals who were seeking the Baha'i faith outside of the meeting and try to disturb them or to harass them or the comments that they made during the meeting. So if we talk about persecution, that was the type that I, had, uh, I was an eyewitness to that type of uh, interaction. But uh, other than that, actually being in a Christian college was an interesting one because I have an episode that I can share with you. One time I had a literature teacher, a Persian literature teacher, and she was a Muslim. And she found out that I was a Baha'i. And then she asked me if I would make a presentation on the Baha'i faith in class to the students, which I gladly accepted, and I gave my presentation. And then the next day, I noticed all over the campus, students were reading anti-Baha'i literature that had been distributed by, the, uh, by some of the Muslim students who were more fundamentalists, and they usually had their head covers and so on. And they distributed those anti-Baha'i literature <laughs> And on the, on the campus, which I could see in the hands of the students reading, just in response to one talk that I gave in a classroom. But then over and above that, another interesting aspect related to this issue was that the principal of the school called me into her office. Now, she's a, she was a Christian. And then she said to me, you know, uh, we don't talk about religion in this college. Why did you talk about the Baha'i faith? And I said, well, because my teacher asked me, invited me to speak on the Baha'i faith. Therefore, I accepted that invitation. And she said, well, this is not 
uh, a place to teach religion, and I said, well, you're teaching us the Bible in the name of classics, aren't you? Isn't that religion? She says, no, but that's classics. I said, but the content is the Bible. So why would you have the right to teach us the Bible if I cannot speak about the Baha'i faith? So (laughs) the persecution due to, I mean, on that occasion was on both sides. Hmm. It was from both Muslims and Christians. And so that has, uh, you know, stayed in my mind. and, uh, uh, And occasionally I remember that episode of what happened. You know, uh, I can also imagine the students coming home and the parents saying, well, what did you learn today? And they, <laughs> they tell their parents, oh, somebody gave us a presentation on the Baha'i faith. <laughs> yes, and that, that was shocking. I'm sure it was shocking. But, but the reaction was, well, I'm sure that's why they immediately came up with is anti-Baha'i literature and spread them throughout the college. Yeah. Uh, no doubt their parents probably led them to respond like that. But the college, its purpose was to teach Christianity and to convert the Muslims, because in the college we had anti-Baha'i literature as well as anti-Islamic literature on the shelves of the college. Wow. And of course, when the Iranian government changed, one of the first things that they did, they closed down the, the Christian college. Now, that's interesting, because I'm really surprised that there wasn't more complaints about the Christian college being anti-Muslim even before the Islamic Revolution? Uh, That was very interesting because we did have a teacher, one of our teachers who taught us uh, the Persian culture in in Farsi. He openly, I mean, he would stand up and speak against Islam repeatedly in his classes. And I was always shocked why, uh, you know, with all their strength, uh, the, the Muslims were not able to pull him down. But he continued on. Uh, the, the, those were parts, part of the lectures. But during the time of the Shah, for whatever agreement they had or whatever reason was behind it, they did not succeed in getting him uh, down from his uh, teaching position. But once the Islamic Republic took over, then they closed down the college. Now, what, I don't know how long after, but I heard later on that they closed it down. And what was the time frame that you were in Iran? 1970 to 1976. So three years prior to the Islamic Revolution, we left Iran. Did you see the progression of the Shah's decline? Uh, yes, I did. My sixth was picking up certain things. Uh, in, in 1976, when we decided to leave Iran, although our children persuaded us to leave Iran, but I did sense something in the air that was not right. And then in 1977, I had to take care of some business, and I went back during six weeks of summer to Iran. And at that time, I sensed even more that something was cooking, uh, lights would go out, you know, I would read the newspaper, bits and pieces of events that could have served as a kind of a preparation of the, uh, of the co- uh, country for a revolution to come. Uh, so there was that sixth 
sense that I felt something uncomfortable, and that was another reason why I went back to Iran to take care of whatever we had uh, not finished at the time that we uh, left uh, to just wrap up some finances and so on, and we came back. Then I came back. I, I went alone and stayed at my uncle's house. What was the reason that you left in 76? In 76, uh, our children had become, by then, two of them had become teenagers. We had brought them back to the U.S. on one occasion, and they liked some aspects of the freedom that young people could have in the U.S. that they could not have in Iran, as well as their cousins were all here, relatives were here. And so they insisted that we come back to the U.S., and that's what ended the coming back. Although, as I said, I did have some feeling that something was changing. I couldn't put all my hands on it, but again, it was a sense that I, I felt uncomfortable about the course of events and the change in what was in the air <laughs> that uh, prompted us in combination with the request from our kids to come back. And then, of course, in 1977, that was a lot more confirmed when I returned for six weeks. What were the kinds of freedoms that your kids noticed in the U.S. that they longed for in Iran? Uh, one, of course, being uh, with their cousins was a major thing. And, and secondly, it, well, there were limitations on many aspects of their behavior in Iran, where over here they had more freedom to move about if they wanted to go swimming, for instance, they could go swimming and there wouldn't be any major restriction. Uh, I guess if they wanted to wear a certain dress, they didn't have to be all that covered. It's just, if, you know, U.S. is more welcoming. I'm not saying that every aspect of U.S. is good and healthy for kids to grow in, but it was something that uh, it attracts the young, uh, usually young or is attracted to the U.S., and I'm sure they shared the, those feelings with the rest of the youth. So even prior to the Islamic Revolution, there was some restrictions on dress, and particularly for, the, for right. women? Right, some degree of dress code, and uh, which wasn't all that bad, personally, when I think back. Just overall, uh, they, there weren't as many activities, possibilities for activities that they had in those days. Like over here, they did not have them back in Iran. Social activities. Now, not any social activity that would deviate from the norm of the Baha'i faith, but activities where they could be with other young people and go to certain group activities and not be restricted from, or just even having access to these activities which the young usually are attracted to. So, Fareshte, what did you do when you came back to the States? When I came back to the States, that was in 1976. We, had, we eventually bought a house. Well, I went and got a real estate license and was involved maybe in real estate for maybe two or three years. But then after that, I decided to go ahead and pursue my education there was a Baha'i by the name of Dr. Dan Jordan, who was 
here in the West, and he was involved in a uh, university, the, you know, the st- starting a program, program of education or a branch of learning at that particular university. And uh, one day he came to the Baha'i Center and he gave a talk about it, and I happened to be the, his translator into Persian or interpreter, and I said to myself, well, maybe this is my calling. So within the next few days, I made an appointment with him, went and met with him, and decided to enroll myself into the master's program because I'd already obtained the bachelor's from Iran, and then decided to pursue master's in education. And I felt that his philosophy of teaching was well integrated, and I liked that so one pursued that, got the master's, and then later on the PhD in psychology. Where did you settle in when you came back to the U.S.? Uh, in San Diego. Dr. Jordan, was he at Stanford at that time, or was this the University of Massachusetts? Uh, no, he had been with the University of Massachusetts earlier. I was during the transfer from UMass to uh, this smaller university in San Diego. So you went uh, straight from your master's to your Ph.D. program? Right. I did right after 1981. I remember I was consulting. As a matter of fact, Dan Jordan came and picked me up and took me for my graduation. Mm. That I recall vividly for my master's. And then for the Ph.D., I was consulting with him. You know, I was still immature. What am I supposed to pursue should I go for an education doctorate or should I go do something else? What field should I study in? And then it was Dan Jordan who actually guided me and said, well, go for your uh, PhD. It's better than EDD. So it was from him that I learned which one was probably a better degree for launching, launching a job later on. Hmm. And I did. I did go and pursue the Ph.D. in psychology and finished it up by 1984. And then what did you do after that? Well, let me see. I wrote my doctoral dissertation in 1984 on, well, it was on psychology of martyrdom and focusing on the Baha'i martyrs of Iran who had been persecuted and executed between 1979 and 1982. Uh, at that time, of course, I became a lot more informed regarding the persecutions of the Baha'is in Iran through the letters and documents and cross-referencing them with other documents from Muslim observers or eyewitness accounts. And so I became quite familiar with what was happening in Iran against the Baha'is with the new regime. So... Can you talk about a little bit what relationship you found or discovered or investigated in regards to psychology and the martyrdom of the Baha'is during that time period? First of all, we just, I looked at all the documents that I could get hold of, uh, which, which consisted of the letters that they had written to their children, their spouses, to their friends, court documents, as well as wills and testaments and sometimes even poems, poetries, and other forms of communications they may have had. So I had to get hold of written documents, which focused on the on two hypotheses. One was the belief of the martyrs, 
and the second part was their response. And I found that uh, their response to their persecution and imminent execution wasn't wasn't of atypical uh, nature. In other words, it was not the typical way people respond to knowing that they're going to be persecuted and tortured and executed. They would be very negative and low and down. Rather, they were pretty upbeat. They understood their position. They understood what the purpose of life was. They understood that the persecutors and executors were falsifying about a lot of the accusations, and they also understood that maybe the persecutors and executors, some of them were not informed about the truth of the Baha'i faith, or maybe they were informed and they wanted to annihilate it or destroy it as much as possible. So there were different reasons for why they did the persecution execution, but it was well orchestrated by the government of Iran and well planned out to be carried out. So the leadership, predominantly, of the Baha'i communities in Iran were wiped out. And so as many letters I could have had from them or documents, I did a content analysis of the beliefs and responses, and I found that both their beliefs were atypical, so were their responses based on their beliefs, were not the common response that we get from people who are about to be killed. It was very positive. They understood it, and they looked forward to sacrificing their lives for a faith that was, bring, well, that was meant to bring uh, global unity and bring happiness and peace and prosperity for the entire human race. I think many Westerners have a hard time understanding the purpose of someone willing to die for something they believe in rather than maybe using the logic, well, if I recant my beliefs inside prison, that allows me to get outside of prison and then continue propagating these teachings of global unity and peace. The way that Baha'is looked at this issue of persecution and execution was that, first of all, they do not believe that they should recant their faith, because this is part of the tenets of their faith, not to recant under pressure and not to recant their belief. And the reason for this is that they feel that when you are you believe in something, it is not something to just use it for the purpose of convenience, when it's convenient to become to be a member, when everything is easy going, be a member of it, and then as soon as you face hardship to recant it and give it up. So when you have that belief system, you're not going to recant. This was actually very similar to the early martyrs of Christianity. Uh, when I did an investigation on whatever was left from them, actually I saw a lot of similarity. The only dissimilarity that I saw between Christian martyrs and Baha'i martyrs was that the Christian martyrs all the time talked about going to heaven after they die, which, of course, Baha'is believe also 
that there is continuity of spiritual life hereafter. But usually they did not talk about it in their documents. In other words, they were not buying their passport or their visa to heaven by an act of sacrifice. Rather, they connected the act of sacrifice more to this world and what benefit it will bring when the Baha'i faith expands and develops and becomes more global in its numbers, that it will bring more good to the human race. So they were after the betterment of humanity collectively, and they felt that to sacrifice their blood, not, not voluntarily in a sense of that they would go out into the street and say, hey, here, I'm a Baha'i, please kill me. It wasn't anything like that. These were individuals who were usually highly educated, members of Baha'i governing bodies, institutions, serving their Baha'i faith. Oftentimes, they were doctors, engineering, lawyers, highly accomplished. And so when they would not give up their faith was because they felt that that faith was going to bring good to the entire human race. And why recant something and lie about it that they're not Baha'is just to save their skin? It would go against their grains to do something like that. So, Faresh Day, what did you do after you finished getting your uh, doctorate? Well, I applied to different universities. I was very interested in teaching. And then eventually I did launch a job. And then doors opened up and launched another job in the field of teaching, one at a college and then at uh, California State University, and started teaching. And later on, I decided that I also wanted to get my clinical license for practicing psychology. And I went and pursued that also simultaneously with education and did get my license in clinical psychology. Uh, But I did mostly teaching. Uh, for 22 years. And are you still teaching today? No, I wrapped it up. I decided to go ahead and end the teaching career and move on to other activities of life, such as writing and such as being of service as much as possible. What kind of writing are you doing? I'm interested to write more on areas of religious fundamentalism, more in the areas of current social problems and how the Baha'i faith uh, resolves them. Uh, In the area of religious fundamentalism, uh, extremism, and what are the causes, what uh, developmentally attributes to that type of mentality to become a fundamentalist and therefore limited in perspective. Uh, Well, what I found out in my teaching of human development, that during the period of adolescence, where according to Eric Erickson, we form our identities, the identity that is called foreclosed identities, the one that oftentimes parents and society imposes on a child or a teenager in this case, to follow a certain pattern or line of activity or education or belief system that is conventionally and socially correct. And so parents impose on what degree the child should get, 
if they're shop owners, they may want the child to become a shop owner, and if they're educated, they want pretty much the kid to go into their field or, or they or whatever field that they may impose on the child to pursue. And also the religion becomes that of imitation rather than investigation. Then they become members of that particular religion, or even in their way of education, they become more limited in scope, although many of them are unhappy but they will go ahead and pursue it just to keep the parents happy or to keep the culture or culturally it is the, is the thing to do. And so this type of personality with foreclosed identity, where they look at the world from a tunnel vision perspective, this personality usually is more limited in its scope, and therefore they will follow a religion of imitation rather than exploration or investigation, like uh, investigating to find out what is the truth or if they find the truth elsewhere, if they would even consider that to adhere to. They would rather to receive their confirmation from their limited society. And so they have a higher chance to be fundamentalists. Now, there's nothing wrong with upholding certain fundamentals and principles, but when we use these principles to say, well, this is it, I cannot possibly look at anything else other than this and be closed off to any other possibilities or examining and realizing that things in life are, you know, they're not black or white, there are many shades of gray, and pursue that, so they have a higher chance to become a fundamentalist and limited in their perspective. That's what we see in the world. We have them all over. They're not just in the Muslim society. We have them right here in, in Christian society, in, in Jewish society, in every society. A Baha'i could also become a fundamentalist if he doesn't really follow what Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, says, who says, Open up your vision, let your vision be world-embracing and not confined to your own self. Or he oftentimes says, ponder upon this, reflect, meditate. If we don't do this, we will have a chance to become fundamentalists too. And fundamentalists usually are more, well, they're more indoctrinated, and they would think that, okay, uh, this is the only way to look at it, and anything else, I'm not going to go along with it. They would pound their hands on the podium and say, this is it and nothing else. And so they're the type who are going to sentence others or judge others. They're much more judgmental to uh, say that this person is wrong or that person uh, is not right or is committed a sin or this or that. That's interesting because I could see some personality that's more traditionalist sort of hitting a fork in the road where one fork is, well, it's the religion of my parents and I'm just following it because of tradition, but he's not, he or she's not really one who's really enthused, really... Motivated. Moti- thank you. Motivated and just sort of follows it for, for a traditional reason. But that same personality taking the other fork where he's extremely remote, motivated by 
uh, his traditionalist viewpoint can then end up being the fundamentalist or even the fanatic personality. Because I've, I know many Christian friends who say, well, you know, I was raised a Catholic. I don't see any reason why I should change. That, it, and that's sort of a traditionalist personality, but in the same token, they're not really motivated to pursue their religious feelings. <laughs> but then if they were going in the other fork and saying, you know, I really have strong convictions and, you know, I was grown up a Catholic or would, I've been grown up, grown up a certain Christian sect and it's really the only way and then they become more of a fundamentalist, close-minded. Actually, once they get into to the fork, they can go either way. The chances are usually higher. Of course, in today's society, because they have exposures to so many variety of things, uh, living in a country or a world that is becoming a lot more heterogeneous, they're going to have no choice but to be exposed to a lot of diversity of viewpoints, and it's not going to be the traditional system of looking at religion uh, as much as it used to be, and they may fight it. I mean, a human person, the way that he responds to situations is not going to be uh, exclusively one way or another. Yes, there would be a portion of the population who will remain a fundamentalist and will not even consider or would consider it a sin to even possibly look at anything else because of the fear. Uh, most likely his or her religion is based more on fear and fear of damnation, fear of hell, and those uh, literal interpretations of the holy writings. That's where uh, sometimes the problem lies. And then there are those who may not have the motivation, or they may look at religion as something that is just emotionally you accept it. It doesn't have to be logical. That's another a major misconception in religion, that religion only has to do with your feelings and a belief that is just kind of a hodgepodge of things, but it doesn't have any reality in, uh, in logic or reason or uh, rationale or, or science or whatever you may want to call it. And so uh, that person may think of religion as a separate entity from logic and therefore just accepted more on emotional basis because of how he or she has been raised, the society, the interaction with a certain group of people. They like the friendship, so the friendship possibly overcomes any other barriers that they may face in their mind. In other words, like if they're listening to something and it doesn't make sense, they may immediately wipe it out. They may think it's a sin or, you know, Satan has entered their brain or something to that effect. So uh, there are going to be many different reactions. I find even people who are into education a lot of times face these barriers because they put religion in a different, a totally different area of their function. Uh, in other words, it's more compartmentalizing it that here is in this part of the brain, uh, which has to do with emotions that's, and feelings and so on, and just feeling good about saying a prayer, that's religion. And those are major misconceptions of religion, because religion is supposed to be very logical if it comes from a logical God, and it's not supposed to be something that you just uh, use it because it makes you just feel good all the time. <laughs> 
and, and discard any other thing which may not go along with reality, because then it creates a lot of duality. I feel a lot of individuals have a lot of dualities within themselves when their faith and logic do not go together. But they try to kind of erase one in favor of the other because they're afraid of the end result, not knowing that actually having a better global perspective of their faith, both logically as well as affectively or emotionally, uh, that they will do a lot better and will create less dualities in themselves and in passing those concepts to their children less in them, too, because as the world is advancing, we are going to be facing a lot of challenges and diversities of opinions and viewpoints regarding our faith and belief system. And if it's too illogical or too superstitious, or we haven't even understood the uh, real meaning of a lot of parables or statements, whether they're biblical or Quranic or otherwise, then we can run into all kinds of problems, both internally ourselves as well as externally in relationship with others. Fareshte, what is the other subject in the process of writing about? Were any current social issues that, re, uh, that I can, can look at them from spiritual perspective and, and the way, especially Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, tries to uh, resolve or the principles that he gives that are very global in perspective, how I can, you know, talk about these issues. Like, for instance, can fathers mother? Mm. Okay, I mean, this has become a very popular thing nowadays for fathers mothering. And, and so you look at it from different perspectives, both scientific as well as religious perspective, and hopefully come up with some kind of uh, responses that may make some sense that would protect the fathers, the mothers, and our children, too. So what did you come up with, with, with that particular issue? With that particular issue, well, yes, fathers can mother, depending, of course, the, on the definition of mothers, but I have come to the conclusion that uh, both parents are very important in the lives of children. And each one does have, to some extent, a certain role and equality doesn't mean a role substitution. Rather, that the fact that the mother is the one who bears the child for nine months and holds the child in her bosom for maybe about a year or so to nurse that baby and is the first educator of the child, and to suddenly substitute that uh, with uh, fathering, as a complete substitution, not a complementary uh, substitution. In other words, it's, yes, for the parents both to help to raise the child, but to eliminate one, unless, of course, there are some uh, real difficulties like mental illness in the mother or, or serious problems in the mother, but to substitute one for the other may be shortchanging the child. The child needs both parents, and from each one they can learn certain things, and from both of them, they can also learn certain things. And it's the combination that makes the whole greater than the sum of its parts. Now, what about the situation where you have a stay-at-home father and you have a working mother that is present and you have that situation? Right. Well, in a situation...
situation like that, and there are uh, some, a lot of women have been getting their education, and so they're now out of home, and, uh, and the father is at home. And, and so be it. You have to do the best and make the best out of it. Although I would like to see during the primary months and years of the development of the child, especially when nursing is an issue, especially breastfeeding the child, for the mother to be involved. I know they can pump, but there, are, there is a lot of research that shows when the child is next to the heartbeat of the mother, in the bosom of the mother, and is, is getting his or her milk directly from the source, it has a different effect than just uh, using a bottle instead. Of course, in that case, I would recommend that the father will hold the child as close to his bosom and his arms as possible, but, again, that's the bottle, and the other one is the breast that is endowed with milk for the development of the child during the early years. So education, as Abdul Baha says, begins with the milk. And, uh, and, and how a mother holds an infant and how she feels proud of the fact of nursing that baby and close to the warmth of her body, these things are very important developmentally for the well-being of the child, the development of the brain, and the whole uh, aspects of the relationship between the two, of which not all of them are easy to measure scientifically either. Well, Fareshde, thank you so much for your perspective and sharing your thoughts with us. Well, you are very welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Fareshde Bechtel a Baha'i and psychologist. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.